Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans. We are moving right along through the book. We are in Romans uh, 13. Today uh, we'll finish up chapter 13, Lord willing, and um, start with verse um, verse 8. <clears throat> okay, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything. The Bible has a lot to say about finances, about money. The subject of uh, finances actually would make a fascinating study if we had time to do it this morning and over the next several months. Uh, the Bible teaches us about money, about loans, debts, co-signing, suretyship, stewardship, interest, investments, give, giving, paying, and the limited nature of earthly riches versus the eternal value of investing unrighteous mammon, unrighteous money, uh, for eternal treasures. So there's a lot to talk about, but that's not my topic this morning. So you can do your own study at home, or maybe someday we'll have a, a study just on that, as we did once with, uh, in the book of Proverbs. The statement, owe no one anything, does not cover the entire biblical financial advice that we will find throughout the Bible. But it's a good starting point, and if you follow that, it will save you a world of hurt, okay? Owe no man anything, or no, owe no one anything, it means essentially to pay your bills on time. We all go into debt in a certain way. If you have a house, you, um, even if it's paid off, you use electricity and water and garbage, and all of those things are actually on credit uh, until the end of the cycle, and then you pay them. But the point is, pay it. Don't owe anybody anything. Don't go into debt. Don't borrow money for luxuries or non-essentials. And if someone once said, if you find yourself in a financial hole, stop digging. Okay, stop digging. Do all that you can to be free from slavery to lenders. For the Bible says in Proverbs 22.7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the servant of the lender. Now, if you remember back in chapter 12, verse 1, we talked about how this is a key, verses 1 and 2 are keys to what follows, and it includes this passage. And the idea is that the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold. It wants you to think like the rest of the world does. And we need a transformation in our thinking that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is not the counsel the world would give you. The world would say, borrow more. Take your house and use it like a credit card. Take out home equity lines of credit so that you can spend to your heart's content. But the world is constantly pushing us to take out more and more debt. Just look at commercials on TV um, or, or commercials anywhere. They want you to buy. And if you can't afford it, well, put it on credit. And if you can't afford that, well, even credit cards now are allowing you to pay them off in monthly installments. If you, if you make a major purchase, you'll see on your credit card statement, you can pay this off in six months, not without interest. 
So pay off your debts, pay on time, pay in full, but realize this as believers, and this is the point of the passage, we have a debt that we will never pay off in this life, and that debt is the debt of love. So the Bible says, owe no one anything, and I stop there, but the rest of the verse says, except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. That statement is actually uh, revolutionary. We have a debt or an obligation that is a perpetual indebtedness to all other human beings. Origen, an early church father, said, the debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt which we pay every day and forever owe. Owe no one anything except to love one another. And our debt to love one another, first of all, applies to one another, our fellow believers, Christians. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one, uh, if you love one another. But our debt extends beyond just the Christian circle. It extends to, the, to all people. Jesus taught, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Do you remember the day when a lawyer came to Jesus and he asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment or law or commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament scripture is fulfilled in these two laws, love for God love for one another. And we actually fulfill the law when we love one another. If you go back to the early parts of the book of Romans, we see how we were in the mindset and the Jews were in the mindset of God gave the law, I must grit my teeth and I must follow it to be pleasing to God. And it became a legal system of impossibility. And the Lord said, That's never, that was never my intention. My intention was for you to fulfill the law by loving one another, loving God and loving one another. And Paul selects five of the Ten Commandments and shows how love fulfills the law. So let's, let's read uh, verses 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The, the word love in uh, Scripture, so where it says, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, that word love is the Greek word agape, or we sometimes say agape. So agape is probably the better pronunciation of it. 
Agape is the highest form of love that you will find uh, in the universe, in the Bible. Agape is a deep and thoughtful, sacrificial love that endures regardless of circumstance. Agape love is from God. It is the love that God showed to us, and it is the love that he expects us to show to others. We can love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Agape love is also a, um, a choice. Did you know that love is a choice? Many people today, as you ask them about love, they say, oh, well, it's kind of this warm and fuzzy feeling that I have in my heart, especially when my uh, husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend comes near me. I just, you know, have all this feeling. Well, feeling may be part of it. Emotions may be involved, but agape love is choice. It is a choice. You choose to love someone. You choose even to love the unlovable. Okay, That is sacrificial love. Love is deep and thoughtful. It is patient and kind. It thinks no evil. It is not envious. Agape love is sacrificial and comes from a single pure desire to put the interests of others ahead of our own interests. Agape love endures regardless of circumstance. It is not provoked. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. All of this is found in 1 Corinthians 13. Agape love. Agape love is the kind of love, as I said, that the Lord had for us. It's the kind of love that the Lord wants us to show one another. And this is, if we do this, this is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for our lives. So let's take a look at the commandments that Paul uh, raised here. Agape love does not commit adultery. For an, uh, an immoral or adult, ad, adulterous relationship demonstrates, does it demonstrate that you love the other person? or that you hate the other person. It actually demonstrates that you hate, not love. Immorality takes advantage of another person for self-gratification. It corrupts them, defiles them, and violates them. Adultery robs a person of innocence, purity, intimacy, trust, honor, and integrity. Infidelity shatters the most intimate relationship a person has with their spouse, it destroys families, it destroys friendships, and it, and it destroys fellowship. True love reserves sexual intimacy in, for the bonds of marriage, knowing that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Love does not commit adultery. Love does no harm to a neighbor. The next one is agape love does not commit murder. I want you to think for just a minute about your relationships with other people. Do you have jealousy, bitterness, resentment, anger, or vengeance in your heart? Someone once asked a woman, have you ever thought about divorcing your husband? She said, no. Killing him? 
Yes. Divorcing him? No. The idea here is that we are to choose to replace the murder motives. All of these things that I mentioned, resentment, bitterness, anger, and so on, uh, for agape love. True love will not despise someone. They will not, it will not wish evil upon someone, hate them, do harm to them, evil to them, or ultimately take their life. It's impossible to show agape love and hatred at the same time. You cannot mix. It's like oil and water. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Next, agape love does not steal. True love will never take something that belongs to another without their permission and without a, a purpose of returning it to them. True love desires not to take, but to help other people and provide for their needs, not to cause them to suffer loss. True love is more concerned with giving than receiving. It's interesting to me that uh, when a person uh, comes to Christ who used to be a thief, who used to be uh, a robber or a burglar, very often God will take that person and so transform them that they become a philanthropist. It's very interesting what God does in the heart of a person. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Agape love does not bear false witness. Love does not gossip, ridicule, or lie. It does not accuse another person falsely. True love actually looks for ways to build up believers or other people, not tear them down. Agape love will cause us to speak about whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Agape love does not covet. What does covet mean? It means to have a craving or a lust for what belongs to other people. If we covet, we are not thinking about them. We are thinking about ourselves, our longings, our happiness, our satisfaction, our pleasures, regardless of how that affects others. And it creates a jealous bitterness against others who have what we want, whether it's their house, their car, their possessions, their job, their benefits, their station in life, their spouse, their kids, their grandkids, whatever it is. Agape love is the opposite of coveting. Love thinks about the blessing that God has given to other people and rejoices in that. You look at somebody and you say, well, they have this, they have that, they have the other thing. You say, you know what? God has really blessed them. Praise the Lord. God, you are a favorable God. God, you are a merciful God, you know? Listen, the Bible teaches us that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. You don't see parcels all over here where God doesn't allow the rain to fall on the unsaved or the unkind. God allows, that's the way God's character is, and he expects us to act in the same way. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Well, all of the laws can be summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Agape love, as I mentioned, it's a sacrificial love. Actually, it's an all-consuming love. John writes, by this we know love because he laid down his life 
for us. The love that God had for us, as we've been singing about this morning, sent his son to this earth, not just to become a baby, but to go to the cross and die in our place for our sins. That is a sacrificial love like no other love. We know this love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Then John says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, Love your neighbor as yourself is not the way we earn salvation. We can't earn salvation. It is what we do because we are already saved. We think differently now because God has given us a transformed mind. Now we know what is the acceptable and perfect will of God. We fulfill the law not out of fear of punishment, but because God's love dwells in us and seeks to find expression in loving others. I have a sneaking suspicion that this week, the Lord is going to test you in this passage of Scripture. Okay? The Lord often does that, doesn't he? When we hear something, when we read something, he says, okay, now you've heard it, now I want you to apply it. And I would not be surprised if somebody comes to you in your life this week where you will say, okay, this is the test. This is the one I need to love. This is the one I need to go the extra mile for. This is the one that I need to show this sacrificial love to. Watch for it. I'm sure the Lord will bring that one to you. A rich man came to Jesus one day and boasted that he had kept the whole law. Jesus tested his sincerity by saying, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And you know, his sorrow and his actions were an indication of where his heart was at. His, uh, he loved his possessions more than he loved the poor or other people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul explains how to live like this. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out, look, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, that ends that part of this section of, of Scripture. The next part that we're looking at in verses 11 through 14 has a sober warning to every believer. If there was ever a time to demonstrate love to the world, now is the time. There is an urgency in the message in verses 11 through 14. The other day I was at the hospital and I was uh, walking down the corridor and you, yeah, there we go. And I heard an alarm signal, and an urgent message came over the loudspeaker system. Code blue, room three two eight. Code blue, room three two eight. Code blue, room three two eight. 
And immediately there was a flurry of activity as nurses and doctors rushed to save a person who had experienced cardiac arrest. The emergency code that came over the loudspeaker chain, uh, awakened everybody uh, that was responsible to change what they were doing to meet the urgent need of this patient. And this, I'm going to show you a video, this is what it might look like behind the scenes. Go ahead, Daniel. saw that at the bottom. Every second counts. Every second counts. NBC reports on a study based on an analysis of more than 86,000 cardiac arrests in more than 500 hospitals over a period of seven years. The results showed that only 15 to 20 percent survived that to leave the hospital. It was noted that past studies also found that over, overall, 80 to 85% of patients who suffer a cardiac arrest in the hospital die in the hospital. They may not die that moment, but they die in the hospital. The alarm that went off alerted the staff of an urgent need, and whether a nurse was daydreaming or a doctor is on a break or critical staff members are with less uh, acute patients, the code blue awakens them out of their slumber and they put everything else aside and put on their A-game because every second counts. And Paul is issuing a code blue to us in this passage in verses 11 through 14. And he says this, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The code blue for Christians is know the time. Do you know what time it is right now? I know it's 10 to. That's not what I'm saying. Do you know the time that we're living in? We need to awaken from our slumber, cast off our daydreaming, wipe the sleep out of our eyes, and see what time it really is. And so you ask yourself, why? Why do we need to wake up? The first thing Paul says is now our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. When did you first believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? It was 1978 when I came to know the Lord. Decades have passed since that date. I have now been a believer for nearly 45 years. I tried to calculate that in days yesterday. I am 16,000 days closer to my salvation than when I first believed. And you, if you know the Lord, you are nearer uh, to salvation than when you first believed as well. The word salvation here, and, and, and in the scripture itself, um, often refers to three different parts of salvation. So the first is that we are saved from the penalty of our sin. That's past. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And when we came to him, trusted him as our savior, that was the starting date for us. So that's past. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We are currently being saved from the power of sin, the control of sin in our lives. And that's what we're talking about um, here. But we will be saved from the very presence of sin at, at death or at the rapture, whichever comes first. But in verse 11, Paul is, re is uh, referring to salvation from the very presence of sin. He is referring to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to take us home to be with him. The salvation that comes when Jesus comes again. And we can almost hear his footfall on the threshold of the door. And we can no longer remain in this world daydreaming through life when a code blue has been issued. People are dying all around us. People who don't know the Lord. Without Christ, they are on their way to hell. We can't live for ourselves anymore, for pleasure, or without a heart to reach others for Christ. Every second counts. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus said of his second coming, But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Watch. Second, Paul says, the night is far spent. The night is far spent. Wake up because the night is over. We need to wake up and recognize the signs of the time. Do you know what time it is? 
the night is almost over. It's a code blue, in a code blue, every second counts. The patient's life is at stake. And if a person is not revived in the first 10 minutes after coding, the chances of his survival are slim. Dear believer, the alarm is going. We're in a code blue. And even the world recognizes this. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist Studies World Conditions, and especially with an eye on potential nuclear war. And they post on their website a doomsday clock that indicates how close the world is to nuclear catastrophe. Ten years ago, the clock showed that the world was five minutes to midnight. In other words, there was, it was that close. We were that close to nuclear uh, holocaust. <clears throat> Ten years ago, <clears throat> five minutes to midnight, the night is far spent. But we need to wake up and see the signs. We have to hear the alarms going off. In our current world global strife, we think about the war between Russia and Ukraine, the muscle flexing of North Korea and China, the global pandemic we have just gone through and what lies ahead of us, and nations even talking about Armageddon. The doomsday clock now reads 100 seconds to midnight. Even the world recognizes that the night is almost over. We're close to that point. And that's not a biblical prophecy. The Bible does tell us that Jesus is coming soon. The Bible tells us the world is facing judgment, and we need to wake up and see the signs. Watch, for the night is far spent. The night, it's a time of darkness. When the Lord Jesus came the first time, he came to this earth, and the, earth, the world was in darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There was a prophecy quoted in Matthew 4, which says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And the world is in darkness yet again. Sin is running rampant. False teachers flourish. There are wars and rumors of wars. We live in a time like Noah's day, when the world was ripe for destruction. People call evil good and good evil. The world is not ready and the world is not watching for the second coming of Christ. But we as believers need to wake up. The night is far spent. In the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Watch, for the night is far spent. We need to watch because the day is at hand. That's the next thing Paul says. When Jesus came the first time, some were watching, some were waiting, some believed the scriptures and were waiting for his coming. And he did come in fulfillment um, to Old Test- of Old Testament prophecies. Simeon, it says, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He knew the day was at hand. The prophetess Anna also waited for her Redeemer. She knew that the day was at hand. But not everyone was waiting and watching for the Lord's first coming. Most religious leaders and the people rejected the Lord Jesus. And it says, and he saw, Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children with you to the ground. And they will not leave in, one, they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Believers, do you know what time it is? Are you waiting and watching for the Lord's second coming? The church age is nearly over. The Lord is about to come back and to gather His children to Himself. We will soon hear His shout and be raptured to meet Him and to be forever with the Lord. We are about to enter that endless day of purity and holiness with the Lord. The day is at hand. Do we believe that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed? Do we believe that the night is far spent? Do we believe that the day is at hand? If we do, then let's live for the Lord. Have you ever gone shopping for new clothes? And you've gone shopping specifically because your old clothes were so old and ragged. You look down at yourself one day or in the mirror and you said, wow, what am I wearing? And you might have old clothes that you've worn for years and the clothes are full of rips and snags and tears. They have greasy stains and dirt and grime and mud and there's no way to clean them up and make them new. So you go out and you uh, get a new set of clothes. And Paul uses this imagery in the remaining verses to describe to us how we should live for Christ. And so we want to look at living for the Lord. The first thing is to cast off the works of darkness. The Bible says to believers, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our old lives are like soiled clothing. Even our good works are considered to be filthy rags. The Lord saved us to change us so that we will live for Him. Please, take off the filthy garments of your past life. Cast them away and never wear them again. Can you imagine going shopping for new clothes 
and you go into the changing room, you put on a new set of clothes, and you say, wow, this looks really good. I'm going to pay for this right now. I'm not even going to take these off. I look so good in these new clothes. And you take the tags, and they scan the tags, and you go, oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got to go back and get my old clothes. Okay? Leave them. Throw them away. Cast off the works of darkness, Paul says. Never wear them again. Next, put on the armor of light. So our new clothes are the armor of light to protect us. The Christian armor in its total is found in Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. But we are to put on this armor and live in the light. A Christian should no longer live in the dark world of fantasy, but should have a holy life that is exposed in the light for all to see. There should be no shame in what a Christian does. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he said, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Next, he talks about walking properly, as in the day. How do you walk? You walk with a new pair of shoes. Okay, My old shoes hurt my feet. My old shoes led me astray. My old shoes took me down paths I should never have gone down. But the Lord has given us new shoes, and we are to walk properly or decently as in the day. With these shoes, we bring the gospel to others who don't know it. Um, And we have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather we expose them. Then next, Paul talks about not walking in sin, revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, or in strife and envy. If you have proper shoes, you're not going to slip back. Okay? I know Daniel's gone hiking, um, and he has a special pair of shoes that he wears, and the reason he wears them is so that he won't slip, he won't fall, he won't break his ankle. And a lot of times when you have a new pair of shoes, they've got grip. And the idea here is if we, if we are properly shod with the right cl- uh, uh, shoes, We won't go back or slip back into the sins of wild parties, drunken, drug-addicted lifestyles, sexual sexual impurity, lustful sexual fantasies and actions, interpersonal strife and envy. Why would a Christian, why would anybody who calls himself a Christian ever live like that? Are you being sucked into this black hole of sinful behavior? Then it would be best if you wore a new pair of shoes. Like Joseph, you may need to put new shoes on, uh, and need, need your new shoes to put a few healthy miles between you and the temptation. Then Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've gone into shop, we've taken off the old clothes, we now have the armor of light, but he then says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we should display before others. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our new wardrobe. And it means to present yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, robed in his 
righteousness, displaying holiness, clothed in purity, dressed in light. When I got up, I got changed, and I put on clothes this morning, and thankfully I see that you've done the same thing this morning. Just as regularly as we put on new clothes every single day to go out into the world, stop and think about this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to be clothed in your righteousness. I want my life to reflect you. I want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want others, when they see me, to see you. I want them to see you lived out uh, in my life. Make it your intention to have the Lord Jesus go with you wherever you go and allow him to act through you in everything that you do. Live for the Lord. Believers, wake up. It's time. It's time that the Lord is coming soon. And this is always the uh, motivation in the Scripture that um, the, the second coming of the Lord is meant to motivate us to live a life of purity and holiness, a life like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us do so for his name's sake. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for your word and how it um, strikes against our heart over and over again, but that's good if it means that we are changed people. And Lord, we thank you for your salvation, that you saved us from the penalty of sin. We thank you that you are transforming our lives, that you are renewing our minds day by day. And as we study your word, it, it cleanses us and changes us. And Lord, we want to be a different people. We want to be more like Jesus. And we want people to see you living your life through us. And we ask that they might do so uh, this week in Jesus' name.